Hello and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 3 Interlude. We are reading The Next End of the World, The Rebirth of Catastrophism by Ben Davidson. And this is Chapter 5, and it's a good long one. This one is called Solar Micronova. What is the Solar Micronova? Disaster noun, combination of dis, ill, negative, pejorative, and aster, star. The sun shines down on the earth with life-giving light that looks yellow and white <clears throat> as it crosses the sky, but one day that will change. Dust, gas, and plasma will begin to accumulate in the sun's atmosphere, causing a dimming to a reddish hue. When the sun darkens almost black from accumulation, the light and solar plasma cannot escape, and the energetic pressure inside the solar atmosphere grows. The pressure eventually overcomes the outer shell, erupting in a micronova. The initial eruption will produce a bright flash of visible UV and X-ray light, which may thermally and energetically destroy parts of the biosphere. This is the burning aspect described in the Buddhist Sermon of the Seven Suns. This phase will not last very long, a few minutes at most, or even possibly just a few seconds. The next 4-20 to 20 hours until the micronova shockwave arrives at Earth, energetic protons and electrons will be bombarding the upper atmosphere, delivering an incredible excess of electricity, ambient atmospheric electricity, telluric currents, and atmospheric pressure cells connected to the global electric circuit will all be amplified. When the shockwave arrives, it will be a long impact, hours to days to even weeks. At first, the shockwave will be comprised mostly of plasma accelerated to high speeds, which would induce electrical disruptions on Earth that would destroy every power grid, create more unstable atmospheric electricity conditions, and could even cause a sun-facing magnetic field collapse, bringing an arc discharge similar to a mag magnetar burst from the sky to the ground. There's a picture in this book of that. It will also begin to bring, bring the isotopes of the nova. The bombardment will transition from plasma to dust and other molecules as the second component of the wave arrives, which will have the have the isotopes of heavy elements in the nova attached to the dust and which will present itself in vastly non-homogeneous ways. If you are facing earth when the plasma arrives, it may be nighttime when the dust and heavier components hit. The turning of the earth through the phases of shockwave impact means that the isotope distribution is different across the globe. This is missed in all dating techniques. At this point, the dust begins to block out the sky, and it lingers in the solar, inner solar system while the larger pieces of the shell arrive, the impactors. Silicate material like glass and congealed cooled plasma and dust that have agglomerated in the shell explosion will arrive at the end of the shockwave, and the bombardment here likely plays a key role in how bad the disaster the Earth actually faces. If larger pieces hit the Earth, it could turn a bad event into a cataclysm. The dust continues to linger in the solar system and at the top of the Earth's atmosphere just as nuclear or volcanic winter might do, and we enter a period of tremendous cooling due to the lack of sunlight. The extra water vapor, evaporate, vapor <laughs> evaporated by the heat and electricity of the micronova thus far will be then frozen and dropped as snow and ice to reflect even more sunlight. This story will continue in Chapter 6, but for now suffice to say that eventually, the atmospheric freeze-out and lowered evaporation due to lower temperatures leaves the atmosphere at a deficit of vapor clouds, and as the dust fades away, the planet quickly warms again, aided by superflare activity, which heats instead of cools, expected to occur in the wake of a micronova magnetic disruption to the sun. In the next section, we will learn where the solar micronova fits into the larger stellar explosion picture. What stars do? And at the very beginning of this section, there is a little chart uh, with three columns. One's cosmic event, the other one is luminosity, and the third one is notes. And it basically just describes the solar flares uh, from for all the way from solar flare to Big Bang, and the luminosity in ergs, and then notes. So like the first one, most flares. 10 to the 26 to 10 to the 31st ergs, average range of the sun. A dwarf nova is 10 to the 30 to 10 to the 31st ergs, as as powerful as a strong flare. The Carrington event was 10 to the 32nd ergs, 
Centennial Scale Maximum Flare. A Super Flare is 10 to the 32nd to 10 to the 40 ergs. Sun Max is likely 10 to the 34 ergs. Micronova, 10 to the 33rd to 10 to the 37 ergs. A Sun Event. And then the tip Type 1 X-Way Burst is 10 to the 37 to 10 to the 39. A Classic Nova is 10 to the 37 to 10 to 43. And this note says all may potentially be recurring. A supernova is 10 to 43rds power to 10 to the 50 plus ergs. Hypernova are 10 to the 50 plus. And according to this chart, the Big Bang was about 10 to the 75 ergs of luminosity and all energy in form and existence, is what the note on that says. This image is from our Solar Terrestrial Physics textbook, Weatherman's Guide to the Sun, 3rd edition, and it is a great place to begin. The chart is relatively self-explanatory, but some interesting points should be made, including the fact that the Sun's micronova is not the smallest kind of nova, and we have indeed seen numerous nova in space that fall short of the energy range we expect to occur when the Sun erupts. The Type 1 X-ray bursts from pulsars are indeed more energetic in luminosity, but they have very small explosion shock waves they would barely reach Mercury if they happened on, on the Sun. True enough, it wouldn't matter because the X-rays would destroy the planets, but the point is that the Sun's expected blast is not so small that it is outside the realm of science. For sure, it can't be so big that it would destroy the Earth because we'll, we are still here. There are three general categories of nova events, supernova, classic nova, and rapidly recurrent nova. The recurring nova are the door to the subfield of study and can span a range from classical nova energy down to dwarf nova and below. Only the supernova results in the destruction of the star, and not at all the time, and the other two leave behind a star that can have another nova. Many astronomers believe that all classic nova recur, and that the main difference between classic and rapidly recurrent nova is a recurrent scale of thousands to millions of years versus years to decades. We have seen many recurrent nova with cycles in the decades, and one in Andromeda that appears to go off every Earth year. The Sun's event would be between the rapidly recurrent nova and the million-year cycle star, approximately on a 10 to 15,000-year cycle. The recurrent nova events are said to be caused by an accretion accumulation of material in the stellar atmosphere, a metaphorical blocking the pressure vent. Scientists believe these are white dwarf stars with binaries, where the dwarf sucks material off its sister star. After accumulation in the atmosphere begins, the buildup of light in particle and thermal energy in the atmosphere will eventually overcome the shell and then erupts, leaving the interior behind. Some supernova type 1a are said to occur in this way as well, except in those events the stellar pressure cooker overheats to the point where the en en uh, entire interior explodes. However, this umbrella theory has a major problem when applied to all such events. The Type 1a supernova versions of the accretion mechanism do not have binary remnants identifiable in space observations, but not all. Oh, they do often have binary remnants, but not all. And in fact, there are very few recurrent nova with an observable binary. They're merely presumed to be there. So, do we need a binary? And then there's two quoted papers. Uh, in, in September 2020, a Type 1A supernova was discovered to have no partner, which blows open the door for smaller non-super-recurring events to not require one either. One week later, they discovered a transient, sporadic, accretion and recurrent nova that is still on a regular cycle. The door is now wide open. But the science in 2020 wasn't done yet. In a paper titled Simulations of Multiple Nova Eruptions Induced by Wind Accretion in Symbiotic Systems, it was demonstrated that the standard model of these eruptions was too strict, and that the donor star sending material into the other's atmosphere could be of any type. This further indicates that various accretion and accumulation schemes are viable options. In fact, virtually any similar in interaction can induce an outburst from a star. In October 2020, Dr. Sofu of the University of Tokyo reported the discovery of a poor little star that wandered into a molecular cloud and exploded. In the next image from Dr. Sofu's paper, we can see the cloud of gas and dust, 
gray on the left and green and yellow on the right, and the spherical cavity in the middle where the star exploded. This occurred because the star entered the cloud and the interaction triggered the nova-like nova event, likely by accretion. It is almost certain that many binary systems in space perform the recurrent accretion nova action, but it is just as certain that a binary star is not necessarily required. Any threshold-reaching change in space environment could induce the same result. That includes shockwaves from other supernova, molecular clouds, and the spiral arms of gas and dust density in the galaxy. These are space encounters that our sun almost surely endures. The stellar atmosphere accumulation might also occur from a temporary drop in stellar output energy, a decrease of solar wind, which causes the accumulation. In section 5-7, we will learn about a feature in our galaxy that we know exists and which can deliver a one-two punch to the sun, providing both a surplus of dust and gas for accretion, and potentially an electromagnetic disruption of the sun's solar wind output. In November 2020, a review of isotope records and tree rings revealed a nova-level spike around 12 to 13,000 years ago, the Gothenburg event, and another strong signature around 23,000 years ago, but with an 8,000-year error range on the latter, which puts it firmly within the Lake Mungo event range. Either they were separate magnetic excursions, impactor events, instant freezes of mammoths, and supernova isotopes effects occurring only at relatively similar times in history, or there is a cyclical solar micronova. Unlocking the crust at the low velocity zone. Catastrophe, noun. The Latin catastrophe and Greek catastrophe with a K means an overturning or sudden end. Nearly all scholars choose to Ignore the astro in the middle of the word catastrophe. In Latin, astro means horoscope relating to the heavens, and in Greek, it has the same modern meaning, star. We have already described a lot about unlocking the crust. We know that the crust is sitting on liquid rock not far down below. If it were not for the thermoelectric plasticity between the layers, the crust would be free to shift. But how does it get unlocked in the big event? We now return to the length of day glitches cited in as the anomalies in the crustal rotation atop the mantle. We recall that there are two known statistically based correlations, geomagnetic jerks and solar storms. When normal solar activity routinely assesses the crust and mantle, we know that it is already capable of delivering electromagnetic changes to the appropriate layer between the two. As we mentioned in section 4.2, A tremendously powerful solar storm could induce currents all the way to the core mantle boundary and throughout the Earth, which may lead to geological unscheduled geomagnetic jerk while the strongest of solar storms is concurrently affecting the appropriate layer. This makes for the two known statistically correlated rotation glitch phenomena at the same time to a potentially extreme level. When you consider the fact that it takes a thermal or electromagnetic modulation of the low velocity zone to unlock the crust from the mantle, the geomagnetic jerk and solar storm effects make sense. When you consider that both can be delivered at the same time with a large enough solar blast, it is a well-fitting puzzle. When the solar micronova is the only way to also explain the isotopes and the impactors, the puzzle is nearing completion. In checks in 5-7, we will learn why the micronova happens at the crescendo of the, galactic magne- uh, of the galactic magnetic event. As the crust is shifting and lifting and falling and twisting, we also have the potential for tremendous mantle and crustal upheaving, which is exactly as terrible as it sounds. Let us take the example of olivine, which is the most abundant molecule in the crust and is also abundant in the upper mantle. Olivine can be uh, cap- capacitized and upon discharged, oh, capacitized, yeah, <laughs> okay. Ovaline can be capacitized and upon discharge can translocate. Billy Yelverton performed experiments that demonstrate how even a non-kinetic interaction can cause ovaline to move around sometimes at, to a tremendous extent. He simply supplied electric current to ovaline crystals, discharged the currents, and watched the crystals fly. In these two images, we see the before and after of Yelverton's olivine discharge experiment. On the left, we see a pile of crystals, 
and after supplying the current with the electrode above, a grounding rod was slowly slid into the center of the pile. The deformation of the pile was due to the prodding of the rod, but the crystals that left the pile did so dramatically, just shooting out. Here is a similar before and after, again with the slow gentle prodding of the rod, but with significant translocation of the ovaline. He also performed experiments with water, showing how its translocation follows electric currents increasing with salinity. There is estimated to be more water locked in the mantle than the entire surface oceans. He was even able to get the water to push up against the cavity gravity on the rock layers above, as seen in the sequential images below, before current, current on, water pushes up. It is worth knowing and respecting Gilberton's work in the lab. He has shown a new light on electric geology that had never existed in the history of catastrophism. From a laboratory standpoint, perhaps only Anthony Peratt of Los Alamos National Lab Department of Energy has contributed more to the plasma physics of the catastrophe. Coincidentally, Dr. Peratt, who was once in charge of the entire nuclear energy program of the U.S., also believes the sun triggers disasters to this planet every 10 to 15,000 years, and that we are due again soon. Dr. Peratt is a good friend of mine and is now retired, living in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Yelverton is also one of my closest friends and currently lives near Albany, Georgia. Beyond the induced current effects of water and ovaline, the remainder of the mantle is considerably made up of melted or melting rocks, metals, and crystals, which have electromagnetic reactivity. Likewise, we are left with the bulk product of the upper mantle being subject to tremendous force in such a magnificent electromagnetic event. However, the scariest aspect of mantle heaving would include a breakdown of the internal skeleton of Earth. In the Micronova, the internal structure of the planet can be affected in addition to the components of the liquid mantle. What previous catastrophists did not know was that how much of an internal structure exists within the planet. Numerous studies have shown that there are massive pluming branches that extend from the outer core region up through the mantle, even fingering out to thin extensions up through the crust. These have uh, been these have been names large, low shear velocity provinces. When we consider the real structure of the planet and the fact that the internal skeleton density is an even more conductive pathway to the core and throughout the internal earth, one begins to run into the problem of having too many ways to twist the world instead of asking how such a thing could happen. A popular media scientist with a YouTube channel called Veritasium recently showed how the intermediate access theorem can make spinning objects sub spinning objects subject to flipping over and somehow returning back to the original position after another flip. This is pretty close to what we are looking for with the Earth. However, he highlighted that this does not apply to symmetrical spherical objects and then incorrectly applied this concept to the Earth, apparently unaware that we are not a a symmetrically constructed planet. The ocean beds, equatorial bulge, and internal imbalance of the structure makes Earth an asymmetrical body both inside and out. This is yet one more reason to question the immovable orientation of the crust and whole planet. Veritasium got the science correct in terms of the physics of rotating bodies, but he mistakenly believed parts of it did not apply to Earth. And you know, again, this book has some fabulous pictures. And um, even if you just look it up, you know, on Google, the LLSVPs, the Large Low Shear Velocity Provinces, um, and just take a look uh, where they where they come up uh, close to the the crust, and you can just see how irregular those structures are. Um, it's pretty fascinating. On with the story. Five point four: Physical and Mythological Clues on Earth. <clears throat> In 2014-2015, I spent a good deal of time touring the USA and Canada in the Mobile Observatory Project. My wife Catherine and I turned a 36-foot Class A RV into a show on the road doing talks at schools, sun washing with telescopes, museum events, and more. 
During two separate periods, we had the pleasure of Michael Steinbacher's company. He and I explored Oregon and the Arizona-California border regions. The evidence was clear for both mainstream explorations, explanations, the slow crawl of geology forced by wind and water, and for rapid cataclysm events. Both exist amidst one another. My favorite thing about Michael was his open mind. I'm not sure he'd have committed too much more than too much more than his name and one plus one equals two. His modus operandi was option A, B, C until his imagination could work no more. This is why he was able to spot intense burns in the mountaintops and canyon walls amidst what is legitimately a 500 million year water and erosion process formation. There's a valley northwest of Phoenix and Flagstaff where you can see where a past wave crested deposited material and washed back. Everywhere we went, we saw ABC, etc., acting in concert over time and available only as a snapshot to us now. Michael lost his battle to cancer with just a few just a few months later. In 2020, my family drove to, from Denver to Salt Lake City via Interstate 70. The lessons had not waned. I could see the deposits of sediment where the waves finally crested and how Vale, sitting at 8,000 feet, appeared to lack any similar evidence. But just 2,000 feet below, it was as though only the tops of mountains were spared as the water found easy paths through the valleys. Where those crests hit mountains, the road cuts were heavy with black shiny layers of biomass and numerous old coal mining operations can be seen on the drive. Inches to feet thick of dead compressed biomass is a surge deposit from the great waves, and we see them over and over and over again on top of sediment layers. The slow working of geology was visible too, just not alone. It is worth considering that each great wave could deposit multiple strata layers of new sediment and that some biomass sinks and others float. The new sediment washing in with the wave always forms the frothy leading edge. It's not just water, but trees, dirt, boulders, animals, and sand. After the leading edge sediment, the sunk biomass layer deposits begin to be crushed as coal by another layer of sediment, and then the floating biomass layer, finally followed by one more thin sediment layer that falls from the sky. For areas where the waves hit and strongly wash back, there may be multiple versions of these layers in every great wave. Things said to be hundreds of millions of years old may be from great events merely hundreds of thousands of years ago, with layers separated by hours to days, not eons. Yet each layer comes from a different distance, carrying a unique carbon and isotope signature from the Earth's continued rotation through the changing character of the micronova shell, and it fools the scientists all these millennia later. By the time I got to Utah to see the desert sand formations allegedly 100 million years old, it was obvious that by itself the ancient inland sea or lake concept was untenable given the winds endured in some of the Badlands areas. These formations would be eroded by rain or blown away or covered up by other particles in less than the 1 million years. A, depos a, depos a deposition date of 12,000 years ago is much more realistic, especially when the other side of the valley looks nothing like it, nor does the other side of the range. In fact, numerous parts of the Rockies contain this harsh desert-like edge to the western sides of the mountains in a lush forest with ponderosa pines on the east-facing sides. The mountain face scouring is not from sand-laden wind or erosion, it is as though a giant beast tore at the mountains with its claws, but only on one side. It suggests that the direction of past waves scoured one side and deposited sediment on the other. The Chumash Native Americans, whose ancestors inhabited the western U.S. for millennia, described this great flood event as one of the core defining moments in their history. You can go look for evidence of washovers, deposits, and more if you can get to untouched land. In many places where there is rock exposed in the desert, you can find the rock art of the ancients and burn scars on the rock to match. Geologists will say the geology came millions of years before the art, but the art makes a different claim. You can still see evidence of both the slow crawl of geology and the terrible punctuations of disaster if you get out and look for it. The microtectite glass beads from these periods are perhaps my favorite pieces of evidence, and they suggest a tremendous event. 
These glass beads can be made by air bursting asteroids, volcanic eruptions, and also in the micronova event as silicon and oxygen combine in the electromagnetic bonanza of the shockwave. We have seen high silicon and oxygen content in numerous other nova, and earthly lunar microtectites have been shown to contain some of these isotopes that initially pointed to a solar micronova. The similar isotopes in the bones of the animals and the surge deposits from the last event solidify the nova aspects of the disaster. One cannot first find these isotopes in the glass beads and bones of the animals in Alaskan muck pits from 12,000 years ago and then think any other star made them. The earth would, have, would be sterilized if it was close, or they wouldn't have arrived yet if it was far enough away. This evidence was largely put together by Douglas Vaught, who is the first person to suggest a nova event and the sun was the cause of the disaster. The sun isn't the only sphere to have a major discharge event in the catastrophe. The catastrophe who kept the field, sorry, the catastrophists who kept the field alive in the 90s and 2000s, Talbot and Parat, were primarily interested in the interpretation and analysis of the great cosmic thunderbolt. In Egypt, Dr. Robert Shosh has found more of both myth and physical evidence for this cosmic thunderbolt. The magnetic fields in upper atmospheric electric layer are both compressed and energized when taking impact from solar storms. The images below show a solar shockwave before and after compressing the sun-facing fields. Almost every time the sun puts more regular, smaller eruptions our way, there is an easy pathway along the Earth's magnetic fields to the poles or into the magnetotail to be ejected into space. However, in the biggest of compressions, likely from a nova shockwave, the fields would be very compressed and very energized, and if a straight down discharge is the easiest path, it will take it, devastatingly. By compressing the magnetic fields, they can arc downward and reconnect at the surface. This would be bad on a normal day, but if it was energized by a micronova shockwave, it would deliver incredible electrical energy directly down from the sky. Many magnetar theories also contain this mechanism, including a potential crack in the surface of the star. It would take the form of a giant lightning discharge and could carve stone and land. This is where Dr. Shosh comes in. He identifies early Egyptian stories of a great lightning bolt knocking off the back of the Sphinx, and nearby he has also found vitrified rocks which require either that exact cosmic lightning discharge or a meteor impact. There are no other options for how it was created. There is no crater, and an impactor would have destroyed the entire region, not just knocked off the back of a single monument. Impressively, Dr. Shocks literally found the strike point. Interestingly, the Earth and surrounding space mountain in energetic equilibrium, so if such a bolt comes down... Oh, let me start that again. Interestingly, the Earth and surrounding space maintain an energetic equilibrium, so if such a bolt comes down... One may very well go up and out somewhere else. Maybe Dr. Shocks found the discharge point. In our plasma laboratory, Billy Yelverton has created numerous alike sedimentary and rock features by electric discharge or sustained current application. Many appear identical to formations you would see on the Earth, the Moon, and Mars. One feature that Yelverton has been very helpful in understanding is the rare cosmological event. These features are so named because they don't know what else to call them. In the center of a few Muscovite mica crystals, in fact only a few have ever been found, microanalysts micro have revealed a rare and unexplainable event. It is possible that the rarity of fine detail analysis required to spot these features has led to many being overlooked, but still, they are enough for a mystery. The feature pictured above looks like cosmic jets with a central node in what appear to be blasted out portions of the crystal. The peripheral black marks are the fusion tracks of the cosmic ray isotopes we've discussed already. The main jet feature and the central dark nodes are similar carve-outs of the crystal with simply matter missing. Unlike the surrounding fission tracks, however, there is no entry point into the crystal for the RCEs. That's the rare cosmological event. These RCEs initiate wholly within the crystal and implicate a saturation of the crystal in a charged environment where the energy taken in overcomes the structural integrity. 
with the energy still being greater outside the crystal, leaving outward paths unfit for discharge, the discharge occurs within. It does so as a dipolar explosion inside the crystal. This is what they can't explain. They have no tools to describe how these crystals endured such energies. It is almost as though the earth itself would need to be bathed in such energy, or at least the considerable surrounding region. The name Rare Cosmological Event for those Muscovite mica features is actually not far off. The electric field of the micronova is an excellent candidate for the saturation of the crystals and the internal explosion due to overcharging. A rare cosmological event indeed. Yelverton is also responsible for the entry of a new element into the geological and sedimentary aspect of the Great Waves. Perhaps the most shocking evidence of the last event is not the mammoths or the surge deposits of bone and muck, it is the Texas rock wall. And there will be in the book, there are photos of it, but you can find images on Google search if you look up the Texas rock wall. Tooled blocks mortared between them, 70 feet tall and stretching for 20 miles around an enclosed area. There are triangles, right angles, and even the blocks themselves are limestone, the choice block of ancient builders. This wall isn't above ground, it's below it, and extending 70 feet below it. The entire structure was covered up somehow. This is a double entendre, covered up with sediment and covered up in source. The new millennium explanation for the Texas rock wall is that it's not a wall, it's a natural formation. That's right. <clears throat> they want you to believe that these cut blocks, mortar, limestone, geometric shapes, cohesiveness, and size are an accident of nature. What evidence do they use to justify this explanation? A few geologists took samples from different pieces of the rock wall, and they determined that all the magnetic fields were oriented the same direction throughout the wall. Even more, they believe that the structure dates to be more than 80 million years old. We have already discussed the difficulty of these dating techniques and numerous examples of failure, but the magnetic findings are the most interesting part. The professor said that humans would have randomly cut and laid the blocks without knowledge or care for the magnetic fields. Therefore, they should have random orientations and not coherent. He therefore sees coherent fields as a sign that it is natural. Ancient people were known to build monoliths of Earth's magnetic ley lines uh, on Earth's magnetic ley lines, and we should not so readily dismiss what ancient eyes could see. More importantly, if that massive wall had been above ground before the last micronova, the isotope distribution would have would be asinine from a dating perspective, and the electric field induced current or magnetic fields of the event may have imprinted on the rocks, especially since the induction in such a large coherent structure would cause melting or softening and vulnerability to magnetic reorientation. The great waves could have easily buried the entire structure in sediment. It may also have knocked over some portions of the structure, which is why there are unconnected pieces of the wall identified on the map. To reconcile the isotope dating, magnetic orientation, and the appearance and physical character of the rock wall, it is impossible. There is no way any rational person could believe that this is a natural structure, and if, if it is 80 million years old, tens of millions of years before the dinosaurs disappeared, we need to have a different discussion. If you are one who believes dinosaurs and man live together, you can feel free to believe they built the wall to keep out T-Rex, but don't for a moment think this rock and mortar wall is natural. Nature doesn't do geometry at that scale. Something atrocious happened and covered up the city and the wall, likely during the last Great America's focused micronova shockwave. The last note in the section is important. Let's go back to the RCE and Muscovite mica and recall how it blasted out in a north-south configuration. Now look again at the mantle structure, but this time with it tilted 90 degrees. During a micronova, during the micronova, I do expect the existing structures to break down as the energy induces to the core. If the core is bathed in energy within the shockwave and there is not a proper pathway for discharge outward, we could see the same RCE like north-south plume out from the core in new internal structures. They would then pull the earth 90 degrees, sit at the equator, and reset the poles to the next cycle. If the new plumes came out perfectly identical and symmetrical around the spin axis, maybe nothing happens. If there is any devastation, they will want to spin at the equator. Sorry, jeez. If there is any deviation, 
they will want to spin at the equator, like Einstein knew weight asymmetries would. This is millions of times the weight of Greenland in Antarctica, and Einstein was only about 50 times short. 50 times sounds psychotic when thinking about piling ice on top of Greenland, but not so much if core plumes weigh as much as continents. As a matter of interest, the African lobe is taller, less dense, and more vulnerably oriented against the mantle motion than the Pacific lobe. The African lobe is more likely to break first. 5.5 Clues from the Moon Missions I told you folks, this is a long chapter. Another place that Dr. Dunning and Douglas Vaught have been incredibly helpful is in the identification of potential evidence on the moon. From the mists of the moon turning red or burnt orange as a great solar flash cooks the surface, to the complicated chemistry and grueling search through archived imagery, there is a wealth of evidence of these previous events. Vaught's analysis of the glass discovered during Apollo's mission, the tests they performed, the discussions of the astronauts while on the moon, and even the symbolism of organizations involved tell the same story. The importance of the lunar findings explain both why they never went back to the moon and why there was never been much pushback on the conspiracy that they never went. They are happy as long as we don't know the real facts. And then there's a quote with a picture of a man on the moon that says some interesting black glass along the sides. As a matter of interest, the conspiracies that we did not go to the moon are some of the worst elements harming the credibility of the entire community that seeks alternative explanations for scientific phenomena. When they went to the moon, they did not go directly through the scary part of the Van Allen belts, and they were in the outer ring for a short while. With the level of technological theft at the time, and makeup, the makeup of the vessel provided to the public may not even fully reflect reality. There are many ways they could shield or direct the energy they encountered. They went to the moon, end of story, and they just might have had a few tricks up their sleeve. The symbolism of the Apollo mission is another matter. Why name the lunar mission Apollo? Apollo had nothing to do with the moon, as he was a solar deity. The overall mission logo pictured appears to show the four horsemen of the apocalypse, with one being the sun itself, more or less in their appropriate colors. The apocalyptic horseman symbolism is white, wearing a crown, two red stealing the civility of the people, three black holding the scales of justice, and four pale, and hell follows with him. The changing magnetic field of Earth is going to change how we see light from space. Light is an electromagnetic wave. The filtering of various color spectra is diminished under the ongoing weakening of Earth's field, such that the yellow sun now appears so brightly white at the top of the sky that it has brilliant rays radially shooting out like it is wearing a crown. If the solar output slows down or accumulation builds in the sun's atmosphere, it will turn red, and through fear and panic, the people will lose much of their humanity. When accumulation overcomes the sun and blocks the pressure event, it will look black, and its equatorial electric field will glow visibly around its equator, appearing like a tipping scale used in antiquity. When the internal solar pressure builds and finally blasts off the accumulated outer shell in the micronova, we will peer through the dust and gas and plasma and once again see that familiar pale yellow hue, but hell follows with it. How can that possibly be a coincidence on top of what would have to be hundreds of other coincidences listed in this manuscript? If you look online now for this local, you will find an altered one where all the horses appear yellow. That is not the original. A quick note on Mars. Mars is much more difficult to analyze. Vaught has identified that what he believes to be ancient ships from orbiting satellite imagery, but many have found these examples to be less convincing than his other claims. The rover data is more interesting because it gives a first-hand look at some of the medium-scale geology that is difficult to understand looking down from a satellite. In particular, some of the material deposits looking like the black glass the astronauts discovered on the moon. Dr. Dunning has identified a few items in those archives that could be create deposits of a catastrophe. Also, some of the geology closely matches features produced by Yelverton in the lab. Of course, the single most compelling evidence is that the enormous Veils Marianas feature near Mars' equator. It's a cosmic thunderbolt. If a cosmic thunderbolt is big enough, it could transform the landscape, landscape as Yelverton has shown, and as, mag, and as magnetar theory implies.
5.6, two reasons a micronova brings an ice age. There are aspects of a solar micronova that cool the planet and are different from a solar flare, which definitively produces heat. There are two scenarios worth mentioning in terms of the triggering of rapid cooling, a strictly micronova-induced ice age and one aided where, or initiated by the process described by Ken and Major White, Chan Thomas Einstein and Hapgood, which are purely geological. I believe there is not a need to choose and that a combination of these two are at work in the event. Earlier in the book we discussed the dust of the nova. Dust is a major product of stellar nova and along with gases and plasma will pollute the inner solar system until the solar wind and photo-ionizing UV light blow it away. The dust will also linger in Earth's atmosphere for a long period of time. This will provide shielding from the sun for at least a few days, maybe more, like a nuclear or volcanic winter which is more than enough to drop the temperature on Earth by a considerable degree. But is it fast enough to freeze a mammoth? We remember that we need to answer all the evidence, including a nearly instant freeze. The primary means by which planets are thought to lose their atmosphere via stellar winds is via stellar winds, with the magnetic field being the primary protection of the planets that have atmospheres. Mars used to have a tremendous atmosphere, one that supported oceans, but when its magnetism collapsed, the atmosphere became vulnerable to the sun and has been depleted ever since. Earth is unlikely to turn into Mars, especially since it hasn't happened in any past events and the magnetic minimum of the excursion only lasts a short time, but we could endure the miniature version of it. During the shockwave impact of the micronova, the Earth will likely be substantially further along in the ongoing magnetic excursion, possibly in the magnetic minimum with a substantially weaker protection from the for the atmosphere. Vaught believes that this could allow for partial atmospheric blow-offs that temporarily depressurize regions of the atmosphere, including near the ground. This near vacuum and the introduction of supercooled air from the atmosphere could provide a great rapid chill. We know from the standing position of many of the mammoths that they were inundated instantly with freezing, uh, with frozen or freezing water and mud. This one-two punch of the nova shell depressurization and ice flood is the best explanation for a rapid freeze of the mammoths, especially if large amount of ice water were swallowed in the process. <coughs> it is interesting to note that the rest of the atmosphere could quickly rush in to fill the void, along with other outgassing from the crust to equalize the pressure. Over eons, this pressure has been maintained and will be rebalanced if the atmosphere takes a major loss. The winds provide yet another explanation for the terrible phenomenon we are trying to explain in the disaster cycle. Not only would the temporary depressurization cause an instant freeze in the mammoths, but the rushing air filling the void could reach hundreds of miles per hour, and the event is likely to be felt worldwide. This cannot only cause some of the surge deposits of muck and stone, of muck and wind alone, but could produce higher waves due to the wind intensity. Both the local and global freezing makes sense from a micronova, but it gets help from the geology if the crust shifts. Thomas Major White, the Rand Corporation, and the Pentagon offered an alternative explanation for the freeze, and it does not really even require a solar micronova, just the crustal shift. If you recall in their version, the Earth's crust unlocks from the mantle and shifts 90 degrees, with considerable influence from the magnetic fields on the water, metal, and crystals of the crust. The next cycle, it flips back exactly as it was before. In this way, the evidence of a magnetic pole position in the polar regions over eons of time makes sense. It just keeps coming back. It also explains why the layers alternate between polar and tropical conditions. Every other cycle, it is at the equator. The freeze event includes an inundation of ice and water and mud with the mammoths, but it also freezes the globe over weeks to months because the new, formerly tropical polar areas will freeze quickly without sunlight at the polar regions, and the former polar ice, now at the equator, takes a long time to melt. It cools and freshens the oceans and atmosphere. It reflects sunlight to cause further albedo cooling. Soon there are four polar ice caps, two new ones at the new poles, and the former two at the equator. Numerous other researchers like Robert Felix and Randall Carson came to the similar conclusions linking magnetic events on Earth to rapid ice age conditions, and have determined that a solar event is likely required at some point in the catastrophe. <clears throat> Carlson is especially keen on a solar super-flaring outburst ending the Ice Age as rapidly as it began, as is Dr. Schatz and Dr. Peratt. It turns out 
that we may never know which is the right answer until the next one happens, at which point it is definitively less important than survival considerations. What is important is to consider the Ice Age scenario, not just for where you are now, but for where the poles might end up. More on the potential future pole positions is coming later in the book. Now it is time to understand why the Earth's magnetic field is changing already if the crescendo from the sun is still yet to come. 5.7 Galactic Current Sheet Triggering Solar System Shifts And we are on page 74, and this chapter only goes to page 79, so we're almost there, people. We mentioned catastrophism theories about crossing the galactic plane and how Chan Thomas had the same basic idea. It is a slightly misguided version based on crossing the galactic plane rather than the true rippling wave of the galactic current sheet and fields. In laboratory settings in the solar system and scaled up mathematically, a spinning magnetic sphere emitting electromagnetic particles in a large magnetic field will form a wave of instability first identified by Parker in the mid-1900s. This rippling field separates the north and south magnetism of the system. It is not a it is not riding flat at the equator, and it presents plasma density variations beyond the normal fluctuations. This is a critical aspect of plasma physics, the creation of the rippling current sheet in these electromagnetic systems. Yelverton has done this in our lab as well. In the solar system, while Earth orbits the sun in one year, crossing the solar system sun's equator in heliographic latitude twice each year, the sun's rippling electric sheet impacts Earth every week or so. This has become the sun, this is because the sun rotates in 28 days and normally has three or four magnetic sectors to its Parker instability. Each transition is a current sheet crossing and happens once each 28 days per sector. It is the most common recurring and predictable aspect of space weather, and that should hold true for gal the galaxy too. Crossing the sun's sheet can deliver geomagnetic storms to Earth via their plasma density changes in solar wind magnetic field reversal. These can induce currents in the atmosphere and the ground. The sheet in our Milky Way quick galaxy has begun to be imaged over the last few years. The images that follow in the explanations are the first observations of a wavy sheet that has been theoretically predicted to exist for decades. And then there's, like I said, good images in this book. The central plane of the Milky Way is riddled with density wave patterns and alternating magnetism. Each bar focuses on the galactic plane. Gamma signatures, yellow and red, peak where the wave electric sheet crosses the plane of the highest density material in the galaxy. You can see the wavy undulations and the redder faint returns as well. Between the galactic wave sectors, alternating magnetic field direction has been detected and confirmed numerous times. At the galactic level, this wavy electric boundary runs through the disk of the system, known to extend north and south with its undulation 70 to 160 parsecs above and below the galactic equator. Unlike the sun's current sheet, which is cleared of gases and dust by the solar wind and UV lights, the galactic sheet acts like a swifter duster for charged particles and dust, bringing more than just a galactic magnetic reversal and plasma changes, but also the material for the accumulation mechanism of triggering the solar micronova. This is the main difference between the Earth crossing the Sun's sheet and the Sun crossing the galaxies. The solar system is clean, the galaxy is not. The next image shows the difference in the galactic plane where the Parker instability is included in the model. This presents the same findings with the Sun and in the lab. The solar instability delivered by the galactic magnetic reversal is difficult to model in terms of its ability to stunt the solar wind output, but the material polluting the sheet is a definitive match for the known accretion and accumulation mechanisms describing how these recurring nova take place. Considering that almost every feature of the solar surface is electrically controlled, the galactic electromagnetism may be the only possible way effect may be the only possible way affect the sun's output even if it can't currently be modeled. We should count on both the electromagnetic and dusty components of the galactic current sheet affecting the sun. We know the sun's current sheet can magnetically disrupt the earth and induce currents. The sun's version of that, due to crossing of the galactic current sheet, is likely to be terrifying. It is known from NASA data that a thin veil of dust and gas is riding, direct, is riding directly at the sun, likely already engulfing it. This is quite possibly an indirect detection of the galactic current sheet. 
And there was a picture of this. In October 2020, Dr. Bennett and Dr. Bovey from the University of Toronto definitively showed that the wave-like density structure of local stars exists and cannot be caused by an ancient passage of, dwarf, of a dwarf galaxy through our own. While they leave the final answer open, this wave pattern in both density and velocity space could be related to the galactic sheet. We orbit the galaxy on the millions of years timescale, but just like Earth's weekly encounter with the sun's sheet, we should be impacted by the galactic sheet much more often than we orbit the galaxy. When we consider that it is what is likely to happen to the sun during each crossing of the galactic sheet, when we realize that the sheet does exist and these crossings must happen cyclically, when we need a recent nearby nova level energy to explain all the evidence on Earth, when we see how stars can nova with only a change in space environment, when all those things line up to explain and support one another and the cover-ups and characters throughout the history of catastrophism, and when the cycle is tied to the Earth's magnetic field and we're due for another reset now, and we are seeing it ongoing, we're beyond the number of coincidences anyone should ignore. There will be more coincidences coming in Chapter 6. The solar system is likely already enduring the crossing of the galactic current sheet a few hundred years event within a 12,000 year cycle. Crossing the sheet for a few centuries every 12,000 years is not unlike the few hours each week that Earth spends inside the sun's current sheet. This is why we are seeing the magnetic changes on Earth even before the sheet overcomes the sun, because we are already inside it. Laboratory experiments have shown the reversal of polarity of an entire magnetized object when immersed in an appropriate electric field. The galactic sheet provides that field for everything it touches. And that is the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6 is titled The Next Cycle. Thank you all for hanging in with me, joining me for this amazing read. Um, I really appreciate it. Please share this with your friends or whoever you think might be interested. And uh, we will talk to you again real, real soon.